I ever get up here to preach without this, you can go ahead and tell me to sit down because you don't want a pastor that is going to try to preach a sermon to you without his Bible. Again, the Gospel of John chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21 this morning. And what you're going to find is that John 6 is an extremely dense passage of Scripture that puts all people to the test. The person of Jesus and his words that proceed from his mouth are meant to challenge you. That's his intention. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to see how Jesus tests mankind, all people. He'll test the disciples. He'll test the crowd here. He'll test the Jews even in the synagogue. And most importantly for our purposes today, John writes this so that Jesus can test you through his living and abiding word now and today. And the test boils down to this. Are you following Jesus for what you can get out of him, or are you following him because he's the Holy One of God who has the words of eternal life? Which one is it? In our text today, we're going to look at how Jesus tests his disciples, starting with them, and to see how uh, they, they make the connections to who he really is. What is Jesus to this group of disciples? Is he a great wisdom teacher like Solomon? Is he a great prophet like Moses? Is he a king like David who would rule with justice? Who is Jesus to these disciples? And once you see who Jesus really is, will they follow him? Will you follow him once you see who Jesus really is? Well, our text again today is John chapter 1 or John chapter 6. Verse 1 through 21, these are the words of God, church, so let's give attention to them. John writes, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, his disciples distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. 
Father, as we approach your holy and inspired word, I ask that you would inspire us by that same Holy Spirit that breathed these words out to give us new life. Lord, I pray that you would breathe on us now, that you would be on my preaching, that you would anoint it, not for my sake, but the sake of all of us, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us and that your living word would test us, that it would show us to be true, and that we would see your son, Jesus, Father, glorified, that we would see who he truly is. Lord, touch our hearts this morning. We pray that we would have a true wrestling experience with who Christ truly is to us in our personal lives. Meet us there, we pray. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, if you're like me, you read this narrative and you're asking, what's the point? Why did Jesus feed this crowd of 5,000? What was the spiritual significance going on here? That's the the kind of things that I ask myself. When I read God's word, I'm always trying to kind of put on my, my gospel glasses and see what ways is this actually speaking to the spiritual significance? What does this have to do with salvation? Right? What does this have to do with the hearts of the people? Because if you look uh, and read the rest of this chapter, not one convert is recorded out of this massive amount of people. Right? If you read this in the other gospels accounts, and this is one of the few miracles of Jesus that actually are in, are in all the gospel accounts. It's in all of them. But if you read through this, there's actually no converts. Right? No one is born again. No one has this radical experience. And at the end of it, the only people that are still standing around are the disciples. So what's the spiritual significance of what's going on? What is the point here? What I want to do with this sermon is I want to break it down into two headings and end with some concluding remarks. First, I'm going to argue that Jesus interacts with mankind in a general way. But also second, I want to show you how Jesus interacts with his disciples, his chosen people, in a special way. So we're going to kind of look at these two angles and the two different ways that Jesus deals with mankind. Starting with number one, Jesus interacts with mankind in a general way. And I want to give some examples. If you would look in your text to verse two. Verse two, we see the general way that Jesus seems to interact with the crowds. He's apparently healing the sick. It says that they were following him because he had been healing the sick. So Jesus isn't asking if they're Christians or not. He's just going around healing people. He's doing acts of mercy. He's loving people. In verse 5, it says, uh, or it doesn't say, but you get the implication if you read the other Gospels. In verse 5, Jesus has compassion on the crowd because they're hungry. They've been following around uh, Jesus for days now. He's healing the sick. He's doing all these things. And uh, I think it's Mark's Gospel says that he has compassion on them. So Jesus' general disposition towards all people is compassion. He looks and he sees a bunch of people who he knows are probably hungry. And he says, how are we going to feed these people? How are we going to take care of them? So it's clear that Jesus has a heart for the physical needs of all people, regardless of their relationship to him. Jesus physically heals and feeds people who will later reject him. Right? So he's not discriminating just the people who are going to pick him and choose him. He's not saying, I'll choose you if you choose me. He says, no, I'm going to love all these people. I'm going to extend compassion to all these people. And what you see is that this is what is called common grace. You may have heard this term before in religious circles. There's common grace, and we'll look in a moment at special grace. And what this is is just indiscriminate passion and compassion. He loves people. Jesus loves people. And because Jesus has a heart for humanity, the implication that we get from this is what? We should too. Jesus has a heart for everyone, for mankind, and we should too. We clothe the naked. We feed the hungry. We bind up the wounds of the sick. 
We visit those in prisons no matter who they are. Right? We don't ask what they've done or what their life story is. We just extend mercy and kindness to these people because they are fellow human beings. Believer or non-believer, it does not matter. Jesus extends mercy to all people, so we should too. And this is why the church participates in programs like we did the last couple weeks with the sack lunch program. We don't ask if those kids come from Christian families. right? We pack their lunches up. We give to them. We love them and we care for them. And we say what? Jesus loves you too. We love you, and Jesus loves you. So this is one of the first implications that we get from this passage. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, when you do this kind of thing, church, so those of you who participated in that program, think of this. When you do this to these kind of people, Jesus says, you do this to me. You do this to me. So the beautiful thing about this is is that Jesus is saying, because of his incarnation, because Jesus has been united to human flesh, he's one of us. Jesus wasn't just a man. He is a man, right? So because Jesus is a man, in a real sense, you're extending the love of God and your love towards Jesus when you love your fellow neighbor, when you love those kids, when you love anyone around you. That is a way of loving Christ when you love others and extending love towards them. It says that the judgment of Christ, Jesus will separate out the people Sheep from goats and the ones who perform these works of mercy in Matthew 25 will inherit the kingdom. And when they say, when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? He will say, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. So we get from this that we should have a general disposition towards all people like Jesus that is compassion and love and care. But what is the general response to common grace? When you do these kind of things... You get a a, a plethora of different responses, but one of the main things you get is just across the board, people like to have this kind of thing done to them, don't they? Right? When you extend mercy and positivity and compassion towards people, everyone loves it. Who doesn't love a good handout, right? When you get something that you don't deserve, everyone loves that kind of thing. And this is why you see the response of the people in verse 14. Read with me in verse 14. What does it say? When Jesus fed these people, says, when the people saw the sign that he'd done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. The prophet that they're referring to there is actually a prophecy from Deuteronomy 18. You don't have to turn there, but there's a prophecy that says that one like Moses is to come, and he's going to be coming up from the people of Israel like like them. One of these average Joe people is going to rise up, and he's going to speak the words of God, and he's going to bring great things. So they're saying, this must be the guy. This must be the prophet. So the people have their bellies full by this miraculous event and conclude that Jesus must be their new king, too. He's not just a prophet, but he's king. It says in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So so Jesus pulls back. Jesus is king, but he says, no, 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 I don't think you're getting the full picture. I don't think you're understanding what you're doing. When when you're trying to make me king, when you're going to force me to be king, I don't really think that you want me to be king. I think what you want is your belly full, and you want a ruler who's going to be over you, and and that person is going to give you what you want. Right? Does this sound familiar? Right? Does it sound familiar? Think about this. If there was hypothetically, I'm not going to say that there is, if there was hypothetically a person or group of people claiming to miraculously do things like make uh, make your debts disappear. Maybe, maybe even a student debt, something like that. Student debts will just disappear. Or maybe we'll make health care free. No one will have to pay for it. 
We'll make healthcare free. Or we'll give you a, a program where you can have these little card and you'll get free meals through this welfare program. If you just do this, then I'll take care of you. And what might the general response be by the people? When, when someone says this, well, I want that guy. He's, he's going to take care of my needs. He's, he's going to be the person that I want to rule over me. Let's, like, let's make this person king to rule over us because he gives me what I want. Right? That's what the human heart does. That's what general mankind does when someone extends compassion to you. And I say all this to point out that indiscriminate compassion many times evokes a pseudo-submission. It's not a real submission. What do I mean by that? Pseudo, like a false submission. It says, I want a king who gives me what I want, not who tells me what to do. Right? I want you there. I want you to be a placeholder. I want you to be my king, but I only want you insofar as you're going to give me what I want. And what this person is doing in that moment is they're making their desires to be their God. Their desires are their God in that moment. And this is the God that Paul speaks about in Philippians when he says, For I, or, for as I have often told you before, now say again, even with tears. So Paul, is, he's crying about this. He's mourning this. This actually breaks Paul's heart. He says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Right, this is... The same state of the people that Jesus is dealing with. And this is why Jesus pulls back. And we don't know what Jesus did on the mountain, but I'd say it probably was something similar to the heart of Paul. He mourns about this. This, this brings him to tears. This is not the response that he was hoping for. When, when you extend mercy towards someone, Jesus sees right, toward, or right through that. And, it, and he pulls back because he says, you guys can't crown me as king because your desires are actually not right. Right? It seems like you're right. Yes, I am the person you should be following, but your reason for wanting to make me king is not the right reason. And that's why now is not the time. What they wanted, or, or what, what we realize is that the things that they want are often the things that we want too. It's not just them, right? It's, it's in the church. It's in maybe not these pews. I hope it's not, but it, it happens, right? It happens to churches. There is a large population of people who've gathered around the benefits of Christ while rejecting his lordship over them. They want what they can get out of Jesus. They want a community of believers who offer fellowship meals. They want prayer for their sicknesses. When they have sick uh, family members, they say, I want prayer. They, they want visitations in prison and so on, but not the rule of Christ in their private lives. They don't want that. They just want what they can get out of Jesus. They say, give me community, Jesus, but don't tell me how to live out my sexuality. Right? I want you to be king, Jesus, but don't tell me how to spend my money. I'll spend it how I want to spend it. Right? And there's a lot of people, not just out there, but even in the walls of the church, that have this same kind of heart. But Jesus' interactions with these people remain the same. All right? the, the, the general response that Jesus has towards this is still compassion and patience with these people. Jesus is long-suffering. He is slow to wrath. He consistently extends compassion and patience to these people. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
He wants us to repent. He wants us to turn. That's his hope. Not just that we would get his stuff. That's not the, the hope of Jesus is not for you to get his benefits. The hope of Jesus is to call you to repentance and to be on the same page as him. So in other words, God remains patiently compassionate towards mankind. But to be a disciple means to truly repent and allow Christ to reign in your heart. That's the difference between part of, being part of the crowd and being a true disciple. Not just confessing with your mouth, but living it out. Actually having your heart aligned with Jesus. So this understanding then explains the miracle of the 5,000 from one dimension. So Jesus is simply extending common grace to all people, and we should do that too. But how do we explain the remarks about Jesus testing his disciples? Right? There's another angle to look at this. It isn't, it's not just Jesus doing this great thing. Jesus has another intention specifically for his disciples here. It says that he was testing them. So number two, Jesus interacts with his disciples in a special way. Some examples of this, if you look in verse 3, it shows us that Jesus went up on the mountain with his disciples. Now, I don't want to look too into this, but the reality is, is that he's separating them out from the general multitude here. Jesus separates with his disciples. He's taking just them. He doesn't say, everyone up on the crowd, come up, we've got to have a meeting. No, he says, my disciples, come up with the mountain with me. Verse 5, he proposes to Philip, again, one of his 12 disciples, this designated number, these appointed people, that they should feed the crowd. So he distinguishes again. His disciples from the crowd. He says, we should feed them. Right? You see the distinction. There's, there's a difference. He's not just saying we in the general multitude. He's talking to the disciples here. Now, why did he say this? Why did he say that we should feed them? Why, why would he give them bread? We've said already they did this because he's compassionate. We should be too. But there's another reason. Look with me at verse 6. Verse 6 says this. He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. So this miracle that he performs on 5,000 people actually has a lot to do with mostly the disciples. He's testing them by blessing 5,000 people with this miracle. So even the miracle of the feeding of the multitude had a multidimensional reasoning. His reason is to test the disciples. That's why he fed 5,000 because he had a, a message and a, and a hope for them to get something out of this. It was to extend compassion generally, yes, but it was especially to test his disciples to prove their faith in him. In verse 12, Jesus delegates the disciples to gather the leftover food up from the multitude. So you can see again another example of how Jesus kind of separates his disciples out. He especially chooses them to carry out his task. He doesn't just say, multitudes, come bring your leftovers to me. He says, disciples, I want you to go out there, and I want you specifically to go gather these up. And you can see this specific and special, again, way he interacts with them by noting how many baskets the disciples gathered up in, 13, or in verse 13. Do you see it? There are at least 5,000 people there. Other accounts say that there's women and children too. So there's probably around 20,000 people here. Think about how many people that is. Right? Carmi, where we just moved, is around 5,000 people. But that, that's counting everyone. This says in other texts that there's women and children too. So there's thousands and thousands of people here. And there just so happens to be how many baskets left over for these 12 disciples to pick up. 12 baskets of leftovers for these disciples. Now, what would you conclude from this if you were in the shoes of the disciples? How would that make you feel? Special, maybe? Favored, maybe? Maybe God was doing something special for you. What special grace Jesus gives to his disciples? And this is the kind of grace that I'm talking about that Jesus meets his people with. It's very special. It's unique. 
He could have chosen to miraculously have enough leftovers for everyone. Where he said, everyone, here's a doggy bag. You can take, you can take leftovers to your, home, or to your family and kids. But no, he says that there was 12 baskets, just enough for each disciple to take home. Right? This might seem small to you, but just think about how this would all play out. With the miracle of 5,000 people, you go and gather up and you would think there, there might be tons and tons of leftovers or maybe just no leftovers. But no, there happens to be 12. Another example of how Jesus has this special love to his disciples. He separates the disciples out when they go to leave on the sea that evening. In verse 16, it says later in the chapter that the crowd did not cross the sea until the next day. So the disciples go across, and Jesus is going to catch up to them. But they're out on the sea by themselves. The the sea kind of gets rough. The waters are stirring up. They're getting a little bit scared. And then what happens? Jesus comes. And they're scared at first, aren't they? They're terrified. They think it's a ghost. Because... Ghosts walk on water. People don't walk on water, right? I mean, they're, they're scared. But the, the, the point here is that Jesus deals with his disciples in a distinctive and special way where he meets them where they're at. And this is special grace. I contrast this with common grace because God has a general common grace towards all people. Everyone experiences the grace of God. But there's a special way in which Christians, disciples, the, the people that follow Jesus get to experience the grace of God. And what you'll see all through Scripture is that God chooses a holy and distinct people out from the crowd to be his own possession. Right? There's, there's everyone, and then God says, these are mine. Right? There's my people here. For instance, uh, uh, God does this, and he separates them out. And many times what he does is he divides the people out with miraculous events. Right? Think about uh, in the Old Testament some of the ways that Jesus kind of, or that God separated out his people. With the miracles. Think about the Egyptians and the Israelites and the crossing of the Red Sea. Right? He he took those people out from there, and he, the the outcome the outcome was not the same for the Egyptians as it was the Israelites. Right? The Egyptians were swept away in the sea, and the Israelites were formed into a new people, and God blessed those people, and he he, he gave all kinds of special graces to them. And what we'll see is later in the chapter that he'll say things like, "No one can come to me unless the Father draws him." Now think about the implication there. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. No one can come to Jesus. Even those crowds, Jesus can still say after that, no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. And John records also him saying to the the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. So it's clear that God interacts with his chosen people in a gracious way that specifically and specially draws them out to obey. God is taking extra action just to get these people to come to him because otherwise they wouldn't. That's why he says things. You wouldn't choose me. Why do you love me? Because I first loved you. I I extended my love towards you in a special kind of way where you could not deny it. It was absolutely true and you had to come almost. It was almost irresistible. So God clearly interacts with his people in this special way. But what is the response that we have to this special grace when it comes? What's our response? Well, when God shows up in the lives of his people, you'll know their responses uh, to the, or you'll know who they are by their responses to the graces received. Right? You'll know them by the way that they act when God shows up. Jesus, in this text, tested his disciples to evoke a response of faith in them. Jesus says, essentially, let's do something great. Let's perform a miracle, feeding 5,000 people, and it's going to be a test. He doesn't tell them that, but this is going to be a test. He, He proposes to do this to these people. So naturally, the disciples start to think logically about how they might think this can happen, right? Well, 
One of them says, well, I don't have enough, we don't have enough money to do this. And others like, well, we got these fish and this bread over here, but what are they to 5,000 people? So Jesus does something that their faithless minds couldn't wrap around. He did what only God could do. He acted in this special way. He fed the multitudes as if it were falling from the sky. Right? Something that is undeniable, that is a God kind of thing. And you'll see where I'm going with this. He's showing them to be something special. Or consider their faithless fear when they saw uh, what they thought was a ghost walking on the water. They're terrified, but the special gracious word of Jesus calmed their fears when he said what? It is I. Do not be afraid. I don't know, most of you are probably uh, not sitting with a Greek uh, translation in front of you. But when he says, it is I, that is very similar to the statement, I am. And you know what that means. If you look back in the Old Testament, that is the word and the name that God gave to Moses when he says, well, who should I tell sent me? I am that I am. So they're scared. They're terrified. They're out on the water. And this one coming to them who they think is the ghost are terrified of him says, I am. And it clicks. They realize this isn't just anybody. This isn't just a prophet. This isn't just a person. This is, this is God. There was a moment where they recognized that. And it all made sense. Where the special grace hit them like a brick wall. And they realized that the person in front of them was God. And what we see in our, our faithless fears, Jesus shows up in a miraculous way to show us his special grace that changes our fear into faith in God. That's how Jesus meets his people. These events in John 6 corner the disciples in a special way. They're left with no other place to go once they recognize that the one doing these things is not just Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus, the Son of God. This is God himself in the flesh. And for this reason, Peter says at the end of this chapter, you don't have to look down there, but he says, to whom, to whom else will we go? When they're all standing around and Jesus starts to weed off the crowd. We'll see later. He weeds off the crowd. He weeds off the Jews. He weeds off all these people. And he is looking at his disciples. And he says, will you leave me too? And they say, where else are we going to go? You, you've shown us your special grace in a way that we can't deny it. You're the same man that showed up when we were out on the boat. We were freaking out. And you were there. And it wasn't just anybody. It was a, a man walking on water. And it's that man that says, I am. That we, we made the connection, Jesus. I, we're, you're God. You aren't just anybody. You are God in the flesh. So what we come to realize in this passage in all of Scripture is that special grace ultimately comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is that special grace to his people. And our response to him is the examination, the test that shows us to be true disciples or simply part of the crowd. Right? How you feel about Jesus is the test. If Jesus is just a good teacher to you, then you failed the test. If Jesus is just another nice guy, a compassionate guy even, then you failed the test. He must be God. He must be your king, your true king of your heart. Right? Your belly can't be your God. Jesus has to be your God. So village, when God acts, what does your reaction reveal you to be? When you see Jesus show up in your life, what does this show you? This is the test that I was speaking about in the introduction. When you confront Jesus, when I, when I preach these words to you and I preach Jesus to you, God is testing mankind in all these different ways. And his, his gracious acts not only review, reveal who he is to us, but it also reveals who we are to God. Are you God's people or not? Are you a true follower? Are you a, a true disciple of God? 
A.B. Bruce, a minister of the Free Church of Scotland in the 19th century, summed up this this whole passage better than I could ever say it. I'm going to read to you a quote from his commentary. It just really hit me, and he's just summed it up really well. He says this better than I could have ever said it, so I'll just read it. It says, The miraculous feast in the wilderness was meant to say to the multitude just what our sacramental feast says to us. He's referring to the Lord's Supper there. I, Jesus, the Son of the God incarnate, am the bread of life. Right? Just think, Jesus has just fed these people with bread and fish. He says, I am the bread of life. And what this bread is to your bodies, I myself am to your souls. And the communicants in that feast were to be tested by the way in which they regarded the transaction. The spiritual would see it as a sign of Christ's divine dignity, that he's God, and a seal of his saving grace. The carnal would simply, or would rest simply in the outward fact that they had eaten of the loaves and were filled, and would take occasion from when it had happened to indulge in the high hopes of a temporal felicity under the benign reign of the prophet and king who had made his appearance among them. A benign reign. Right, right, not a true one. So church, let me put the test to you. Why do you profess Christ? Why do you say that you're a Christian? Are you one of the thoughtless thousands who was unable to see past the spiritual meal? Right, You're, you're just seeing the meal. Are you just following Jesus for the benefits? Is that you? Or have you confronted the God-man, Jesus, in the flesh and realized that he is your only hope in life and death? Is that you? If he's not the bread you're eating in Christianity, then that bread won't last. He is the only bread that will last for eternity, that will feed your soul forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Helps us to be able to say, like your disciples, to whom else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us confront that truth this morning, your truth, because you are the truth, Jesus. The truth, the way, 